Episode this 62. is the thing that I'm Growing most looking forward to, that hybridization in the cloud. between what AI can do with and what we So the example that I'm giving to as many lawyers as possible, imagine you're preparing for your closing argument in case, and you have had you know, a camera trained on all the jurors that leads into an AI, and going into that closing My argument, the camera can say, hey, Jordan is a Florida Editors note. Hey everyone, my apologies, but apparently when I recorded this episode, I accidentally hit the wrong mic button for my recording, and I ended up using the internal Mac Studio mic. The mic is not of the best quality, but the episode still turned out fantastic. So my apologies to the listeners and my apologies to the guests. I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening. Jordan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you being here. And to get things started, please tell us, what is your current tech setup? Anything that's on your desk on a day-to-day -day basis that you use to run the work that you do and perhaps also doing some of the podcasts and video casts that you do. Love it. All right. So my short answer is as little as possible. So from a software standpoint, I love the Google suite. You've got mm -hmm. Gmail, you've got the calendar, you've got the sheets, numbers, whatever it's called these days through all that stuff. And then tech-wise, from a law firm standpoint, we use Lawmatics into Practice Panther. From the marketing company standpoint, we use Asana with a Harvest for our time tracking. And then from a creating the marketing standpoint, that's where we have a million programs, depending upon how to customize all the graphics by our designers to load it into Canva for our coordinators to be able to use it, to move it over here, plus AI to write stuff and AI to edit these and figuring out what hashtags are trending according to the machine learning and stuff. So that one's always interesting. But for me personally, I try to be a minimalist. Okay. And what about your hardware? That's a great question. So computer wise, I, we've had, I've had the same computer for, I think, six years oh, along wow. those lines. It's a Dell. So I'm not, it runs email as needed and all of our cloud-based programs. I've got a Canon SL, SLR that I use for all the video stuff. Mm -hmm. Audio wise, I've got this mic. I don't know what it is. And then some ear pods. So no fancy noise canceling, no Bluetooth. The phones did a really good job. And then the mic was like the highest rated lapel mic that we can find, but I don't remember what it was. Okay, so excellent, I have, excellent. I have not heard, I've not heard any complaints. Hopefully we'll keep that up. Smartphones, smart tablets. I've got an iPhone that I use for a ton of okay. stuff. Otherwise, I don't use Apple for anything else. So I hit that weird okay. intersection. What about a tablet? I have an iPad, to be honest. For me, I can either do it on my phone or do it better on a laptop. And so I end up finding the iPad to be like the splitting the difference in a way that it's helpful to carry video on a plane and watch movies for 10 hours straight. So you mentioned you had a laptop. Now, is this the computer on your desk or is this a traveling laptop and do you have a desktop on your computer? On your oh, desk, yeah. excuse me? So desktop on the computer. We did a 13-month cross-country road trip. So we mm -hmm. bought a, what kind of a Lenovo and it like, is it died oh not it died yet but like we used it so much right as we were traveling in through everything so it needs to be it needs to be replaced it has gone through its lifespan so do you call it which lenovo you got i don't it's a very light one we didn't buy okay. it right before the trip like we've had it for a while so it was oh, okay so it's, it wasn't just 13 months old and then it died correct no 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 it was like <laughs> We brought it thinking like, oh, if we have to replace it, we have to replace it. And it survived the entire way. And then we got back and 
literally the fan sounds like it's semi-truck idling Ouch. by like the week that we got back. So, but we haven't had a huge need for it because we haven't been traveling since True. then. So, well, But I got to ask, and you know, I apologize. I'm not trying to pick on you by asking this question. Yeah. It's just something that I personally noticed, but then I tend to be a heavy user when it comes to computers is that the Windows-based machines tend to die early. So I'm impressed that you got six years out of your current desktop. What is the you know secret of your sauce? What do you think, what makes, what is making your computer last so long? What are your tips and tricks on that? I use Zoom and I use Google Chrome and that's it. That's it. There's, I play no games on it. I have nothing, no video loaded on it or anything. Like that. Mm-hmm. It's all, it's all stream stuff if we're doing that or the different programs that we can log into cloud-based. So truly for me, I just need the internet out of the computer really. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, that's something to consider because when people are starting off, they need to invest in a computer at some point. A lot of people I know will use their personal laptops or computers at least to start their practice and try to partition some of the hard drive off so that they can have that dedicated to the law firm or their law practice. And on the other hand, they got the personal stuff going on, but they have a little bit more going on than say what you have because you bought a solid computer for one thing only. And that's just the Zoom, the email, and some Chrome. Yep. And dual screens. That was the, uh, the big purchase so, with this. So, 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 okay. So dual screens, though, who makes your monitors? They are Dell. Are they the widescreen or, or are they just regular? No, two widescreens. Okay. Are those the 32 or the 37 inch? No, they're, I think, 19. They're smaller. Oh, okay. 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 1081. I don't know. Fair enough. I just had an interview with another guest and he went from the dual screen to the single screen because of attention issues. And he's looking to invest in one of those widescreen panels. Yeah. You know, kind of arc around. So, and there's been, apparently there's been studies where some say that is the better way to do things than to have dual screens. Or in my case, I have three screens. I've got a Mac XDR screen and I got two LG 4Ks flanking left and right. I can compartmentalize certain pieces of work here and there. And I was going to keep an eye on my calendar and incoming email and then focus on work. But again, to each their own. And on the other hand, maybe you'll find yourself getting a third screen. Potentially. So like for me, the dual, my favorite use of the dual screens is I'll have like the content pulled up on one and then looking at the caption on the other. So, okay, here's the video we're going to post. Here's the caption that's Mm -hmm. been written Yeah, and doing it that way, which I mean, I'm sure with a big enough screen, you could just drag and drop the stuff the same way. True. I mean, I like to have my research on one side and my Word document that I'm typing into. All right, excellent. Well, let's get into the questions. Question number one, what are the top three ways attorneys should be using AI to enhance their own law practice? So I love this one. The first thing definitely going to be trying to maximize your output, whether that's on motions, whether that's on content, whatever. that's the first use of AI that I think we all need, especially mm-hmm. because of the billable hour, especially because of how many millions of things you'd be doing at any given time. After that, I think AI is a great opportunity to give you sort of a backup on not forgetting things. So if you've got some of these systems and checklists put together, there may be a part like, all right, run the motion through AI and make sure that it meets the judge's standards. And here's the list for that, something along those lines. Third for AI, I think the interesting thing is going to be how we set ourselves apart. You know, if you are a lawyer right now who's competing on price, there's a computer out there that's going to do something cheaper. So really getting the skills you need now to maximize either your personal brand or your knowledge base or whatever that's going to be so that people want to pay more 
for you to be the one solving this problem instead of letting a computer do it. So let me ask you two questions, sort of of the last two answers. Number one, where should attorneys look to be better trained in using AI in the legal field? You know, that's a great question that I don't have an easy answer to because I think that they're so... It's so new and the legal and the law or the criminal justice system or the Mm -hmm. civil justice system is always so behind the times. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that there is actually going to be a a specific place to go from a lawyer perspective unless it's too late. So right now, I think you need to be staying up to date on it outside of the legal industry as much as what people are doing from in other industries and seeing how you can move that into the law and obviously follow your ethics rules and follow all of those things. Like don't cut those corners because it worked okay for some influencer selling supplements. Lawyer perspective wise, I just think that you're going, we're going to be so far behind the times as an industry that the more that you know now, and the more you just try to bring it in your practice and learn by doing, the more you're going to stay ahead of 99% of people. Do you have an AI generator of choice for the work that you do? Depends upon what it is. So like a lot of our graphic designers have fallen in love with Dolly, which does the AI image generation. And then Mm -hmm. they'll go in and they'll customize parts of it. But that starts out as a great beginning to it. I really like ChatGPT from the conversation standpoint. There's a number of other programs that have integrated it. So one of the things that I want to work on over the next couple of months is taking our policies and procedures and putting that into an AI. So you can have the same conversation about, hey, how do I post clips from a podcast up here? How do I file this sort of motion? How do I make a, the right Canva post that matches the firm brand and have it give you the answer in a conversation instead of going through whatever's going to be 300 pages of an of a policy and procedure, a tranual, a Tetra file, whatever that's going to look like to allow people to learn or get questions answered from an AI space backed by the answers that the firm wants to give or the company wants to give. So let me ask you a hypothetical. You sure. talked about, you talked about, I drafted this motion, but I want to make sure it falls within the judge's rules and the way he wants his formatting and all that other fun stuff. What would you use to, to accomplish that? So depend upon the specific program that you're looking for. You know, if you're drafting this from scratch and let's just use ChatGPT as the example here, you may have something in your case management system that says, okay, for Judge Adams, I need to make sure it's 12 point times New Roman. Great. When I put it in Word, I'll do that. But I need to make sure, you know, the margins of this, great. I need to make sure about that. But I know that they like case law cited a certain way. And you may be able to ask the AI, hey, are all of my case citations in the correct format for this? Or did I cite this source the correct way? Or whatever it's going to look like along those lines based upon judges, judges, whatever the judge wants or what the judge has set as their local rules. And then for lawyers who are in different counties, there may be some county systems that mm-hmm. you could do that. You know, we refer to it as the petitioner in here. We refer to it as the respondent over here and making sure that you've got everything correct in the motion the way it's supposed to be framed. Because a lot of these programs are doing such a good job summarizing a much longer document that you mm-hmm. may miss even like contractions. You know, hey, Chad GPT, tell me how many times did I say the word can't and, and can we turn all of them in a cannot? And just going through and doing things like that, which you could do in you know Word with a Finder, but right. as it gets more complicated, the AI becomes really easy at catching some of those things. Have you ever had it, or do you know of attorneys who've had it actually like draft a motion, you know, give it the template, give it some facts, and let it kind of do that for the attorney? So I haven't seen people do it from scratch. I've seen people mm-hmm. put in like, this is our template for this. Here are the facts of this case. Rewrite it. Fill in the template. With those, I have seen attorneys take other attorneys' motions, like something that was filed on them, 
put it in there and say, hey, summarize this motion or let me know what points are different from my client's deposition in terms of the facts okay. that they use. It's done that. And then from a coding standpoint, I've definitely talked to developers who have had it do entire additions to programs or programs from scratch. And then they have to go in and I've heard somewhere between you know 10 and 15% tweaking the code to make it work the way they want. But it's really interesting to see them adding like entire new features with the AI running for you know 15 minutes to spit out the code needed for it. Interesting. It's, it's just amazing how, like I said, we're sort of at the cusp of this still as AIs become front and center. And it is truly, it's going to be very interesting. And as we talked about at the ABA Tech Show this past week, and as I talk about this with other colleagues, it's a great tool. It's not a replacement. Well, see that. So that's interesting. I 100% agree with you, but I know that there are lawyers that are not going to feel that way because they've only been competing on price, or at least they've been focused on that. How can I get things done as cheaply as possible? And then there's always going to be somebody that will have a better knowledge of tech to undercut you, as opposed to getting more lawyers to believe what you're saying and what I agree with, and really positioning themselves to be better than what a machine can spit out or better than what they can find on legal zoom or whatever that's going to be sort of like using LexisNexis and Westlaw online. You don't use the books anymore unless there's some sort of extreme emergency that I could even think of. It's just the next tool. So people and attorneys and others just have to get comfortable with it and just started adapting to it. And those are the companies that I think are the most at risk to either completely update the way things are searched and make it a lot more normal conversation or to just have Google come down with the next AI that they've had read every case in the history of time, and it can give you those answers back too. Now, that would be interesting. That would be interesting, but I think we're a ways away from that. But what do I know? Let's get into question number two. What are the top three things attorneys should not expect AI to do today? So AI should not be a replacement for adding on more attorneys, more staff members, et cetera. It should increase the bandwidth that they have. It should make them able to do more work, but it is not a true replacement. B, it is not a true replacement for actually researching topics. There are certain answers that are going to be wrong mm -hmm. that don't seem wrong unless right. you actually look into them. So don't take it to be 100% correct. And then third, what AI is not going to be just now is it is not going to be the, it is not going to replace finding more knowledge. There is an amazing amount of information combined to this to give you information back in a really mm -hmm. easy way. But there are right. still things where you need to be staying up to date on the best business practices or the best features of mm -hmm. some sort of software or something along those lines so that you can put the right information into the computer to get the right responses or know what's right or what you know or whatever that breaks down to be. Okay, so that's two, I think. So not replacing one. people, not always right. being right, and then not preventing you from still having to learn new things. So staying up to date on. So the one thing about chat GDP I'm kind of wondering about is it acknowledges that it's up to date as of September 2020-21, if I got the date right. That's so, something like that, yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering, have you seen it be, lack of a better, uninformed or short-sighted in some of its answers because of that? Oh, completely. I, a friend of mine who's a creative writer posted a thing. He asked it about like the 10 most impactful books of like the beat generation. So like Jack Kerouac okay. and all them, it was all wrong right. on all the dates. And even all those books are like 50s and 60s books, but the release date, it was wrong on all of them. So there are a number of wow. things. Yeah, that, a couple of them, it was off by a month. A couple of them was off by several years, just varying amounts. There's definitely going to be things like that. And then there's also the opportunity for things, for like true things to change over time. 
We used to think things were a certain way we've learned. It's not going to learn the difference. And so there's a mix of all these opportunities, which will be really crazy. Like right now, it is intentionally not connected to the internet. So it's interesting if they can create an AI that is strong enough and powerful enough and secure enough to connect it to the internet, to keep it up to date on new information. And it can crawl the same way that Google bots, in essence, crawl information for for showing up as search results. There's a way to merge those things to keep it up to date with common knowledge of what has happened. But then you end up running into the risk of Skynet and the Terminator life. So who knows? I refer to Skynet a couple of times, I think, in, in my posting. So this, that will hopefully never happen. But it's still, this is still a fascinating time in both the AI tech world and also the legal arena. Although you heard about that one judge who refused a lawyer's request to let the AI argue the case. It was like a traffic ticket, I think. So I, they've had a number of those. And then I forgot what company, but they announced they were going to like secretly do it. And it got canned the whatever is 24 hours before, which I don't know how they knew what case it was going to be unless maybe they filed a motion and they weren't disclosing. I don't know. But I mean, it's coming. The The reality of it is if it's not today, it's tomorrow or next week or next year, there's going to be some of those things. But there's still things that we are going to be able to do as trial attorneys that the computer is not going to know. Pardon the interruption. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Consider sharing this show with others. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your download feeds. If you're listening directly from our blog, consider buying us a cup of coffee or two from the link on our blog to help defray some of the production costs. Thanks again and enjoy. I think one of the, at the startup alley at the ABA Tech Show, the startup alley is for new computer technology in the legal arena to compete for some funding, I believe, if I remember correctly. In a contest, there's like 20 of them. And one of them was, I think, how to handle a traffic ticket. I think it's closer. I think it's closer than we may think. Oh, completely. And Michael, can I give you my five-year view of this from a child? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is the thing that I'm most looking forward to, that hybridization between what AI can do and what we Mm -hmm. can do as humans. So the example that I'm giving to as many lawyers as possible, imagine you're preparing for your closing argument in a case, and you have had a camera trained on all the jurors that reads into an AI, and going into that closing argument, the camera can say, hey, jurors 2, 6, and 12 are 100% in your boat. They have nodded along with everything you've said. They've said no on the other case. These jurors are on their side, so these are your swing jurors. And it would know this juror really likes the emotional appeal. When your client was testifying, this juror was on, had tears coming down their eyes, was really in it. When your experts testified, they sort of checked out. And having that information to know which juror to address the logos, the ethos, the mythos arguments to during your closing argument, that's where I see this becoming effective in the courtroom in this hybrid model. What the timeline is for that, I don't know. But just imagine having that knowledge going into the the closing or the end of a case to know which jurors don't seem to be 100% vibing with you and what arguments do seem to be the most convincing to them. Well, that seems to be a way to certainly democratize justice for lower economic individuals who can't afford, say, a jury panel expert, not only reading which jurors to choose, but also which jurors to focus on during the trial, the closing arguments that you talked about, because having a piece of software that can do it for you somewhat automatically versus hiring jury consultants that you have to spend hundreds, thousands of dollars a day, which would just be cost prohibitive in a typical, you know, average Joe Schmo trial. And I love the way you frame that because that's exactly what it is. It is the ability to off, it is ability to even the playing field 
when mm-hmm. done right through technology. And, and that's also from a marketing standpoint, the ability for you or I by ourselves to generate 20 blog posts in the same time it took us to generate four to stay right. up with some of the larger players or whatever mm-hmm. that looks like from a content standpoint. There's a ton of opportunity for this. And the hope is that that allows people with the most likability or the most interesting thing to say Mm -hmm. or the most in the moment can impactful trial strategy to stand out rather than just whoever had the biggest team or spent the most money in advertising or, you know, whatever that looks like. I agree with you hundred percent. I really do. And that was another thing that was being discussed at the tech show was democratization of justice and how technology can help with that. And I mean, I think this is clearly a case amongst many other ways to use AI than just a jury selection panel and jury. What was the phrase you called it? A jury to like know which ones to talk to? You called it a... I mean, you've got jury consultants who will do this, but from my standpoint, like letting you know who are the swing jurors who still seem to be up in the air about how they're feeling about the case. Basically, it's an automated jury consultant. Right. Through that. And look, I also think this applies to the flip side of it. You know, imagine we go in front of a judge, we file these 40 page briefs on cases, and we hope the judge reads all of the stuff. But if we can get the if we get an AI to summarize the 40 pages or the 80 pages by both sides down to two or three, the judge may be that much more up on the case and may may ask five questions of each side and know how they're going to rule in this case, and therefore freeing up 30 minutes of time for other cases to be heard or pro se parties or whatever it looks like. There's a ton of opportunity here for a lot of good to come out of this. There was a judge sort of turning this around a little bit. I'm aware there was a judge that was allowing AI to make its decisions. That would be, that's too far for me, but I'm sure it's there. I'm not saying it was the right thing to do. It's one thing to have the AI help him draft the decisions, but in the end, he still has to put, he or she has to put their brain power behind it and make the actual final analysis to make sure that coincides. Of course, if it gets cases wrong or dates wrong, as we talked about earlier, that could be a huge problem. Well, let's move on to question number three. What are the top three legal ethics concerns attorneys should be wary of when using AI in their law practice? One of the biggest ones that I think is coming out of this is the practicing law by a non-lawyer. So like the supervision of staff Mm -hmm. empowered with this AI still needing a final sign off from you as the lawyer or still having your bar card be at risk for this motion that got filed, even if it's, you know, a hundred times the AI is generated, but this one has something that's wrong. I think that's going to be the biggest thing from the direct lawyer standpoint. Really for any business, I think there's an issue of the disclosure of information because ultimately the AI learns from everybody putting their information out there and telling the AI what's right and what's wrong. So do you have some sort of potential opportunity to blow like client confidentiality if you're uploading some of these documents into it? Is there a way to limit or make sure that answer is not going to be given to somebody else from that perspective? And then third, I look, what do lawyers get punished for? Obviously, the big one is trust account. The second one is communication with clients. So how many lawyers are going to say, hey, now I can handle 400 cases because I can file these motions, but the AI is not having the conversation with clients and not keeping the clients up to date. And so the issue, the third issue becomes the lawyer still being able to communicate with their clients properly to keep them in the loop. But I would think that if I was going to upload, say, a draft motion or draft pleading, that I would keep out certain personal identification information, date of births, social security numbers, people's names. I mean, it seems to be that should be something easy enough to keep up when you're uploading it for an analysis by an AI. This way it doesn't get on the internet. 
at least in that means. Totally. In best practice or in the way it probably should be, mm-hmm. you are 100% correct. I just, there's the coolest example I saw. They had mm-hmm. somebody ask the AI, what's the hex code for Barney the dinosaur? And the AI said, I don't, you know, I don't know enough information to answer this question. Like, okay, what color is Barney the dinosaur? He's purple, normally a dark purple. Okay, great. What's a hex code for dark purple? It's blah, blah, blah. Okay, so what's the hex code for Barney? Well, it'd probably be something around the hex code for dark purple. So there's a way where you're asking it enough questions for it to build the connections. And right. it, it's probably it's probably not going to make a difference for any one specific case. But what if you have, you know, a Casey Anthony case or the Murtaugh trial? You got something that is completely so nationwide impactful to everybody. Is there the risk that one of the lawyers on the case uploads something that allows the AI to answer a question about the current, well, I guess the current event situation wouldn't be the best one, but there's a risk there. Now, do I right. think- well, that But that yeah. seems to be like an indirect way to, to upload it or for AI, the AI to find out. So it sounds like that's more of a separate ethics question in the sense that if on this hypothetical, if Casey Anthony's attorney uploaded her date of birth or her social security number, and then AI uses it later because I'm writing an article about Casey Anthony or doing some sort of legal motion on her behalf, say at a later date, because old counsel's gone. Right. And I understand what you're saying. It just seems that the onus wouldn't be on me using the AI. The onus would be on prior party who oh, correct. made the yes. slip. But totally. I, of course, we don't. I don't think I'd want to perpetuate that. No, I and totally agree. I, I, I file something redacted still. And unfortunately, with so many different types of cases that are out there, you have people's data births, social security numbers, and other private information. And the other question I wanted to ask you on this, well, the other thought I wanted to share, and I've had this conversation with others, that if I'm the attorney and I'm having a paralegal or law clerk draft something for me, in the end, I'm going to read it and make sure everything is okay, you know, because whether it's my paralegal law clerk themselves, or if they're using AI, or if I'm using AI, I'd be an idiot just to take whatever they produced or whatever the AI produced and just sign my name to it and upload it to the court. Because that would be a, I mean, it just seems that there are still common sense things that you can do without making any sense to make sure you don't do UPL or commit the ire of the court or worse, you get a malpractice complaint or a bar complaint. Oh, absolutely. But you're getting... So, you know the expression, if somebody can do it 80% as well as you delegate it to them. And right. I have a friend of mine, at, whether it's his word or not, he always adds the... And then if you have to make it 100% the way it needs to be, you can do it five times as much. It's 80% here. You can do the other 20% right. five times. So right. you're going to get lawyers who realize how many more cases they can handle through the AI. And then are right. they still going to... Do you take the same amount of time to read 12 motions that you would have spent to read three before the AI wrote wrote that much? And hopefully the answer is yes, absolutely. And hopefully you still spend the same amount of time on each motion. And hopefully you still put the same amount of effort into each of them. But the potential pull to rubber stamp some of the work, especially as you're having this do it 50 times, 100 times, 500 times on cases, just becomes that much more potentially powerful. And I just want to make sure attorneys pump the brakes enough before it becomes a serious problem. So going back to something you said earlier, so as we're talking about how like you can be more, we'll use the word efficient, and you can go through cases faster, and you can do more cases, so you can do more work, you take on more clients. And something you mentioned earlier, we talked about how, how do you communicate with your clients when you have all this work and you have more clients, which quite frankly, great get the more work done, but when you have more clients, that doesn't necessarily negate the communications that you need to do and have with a client. 
So that being said, have you seen good uses of things like chat GTP to communicate with the client on a fairly regular basis? I mean, sometimes you just need to pick up the phone and call them and sometimes you can have the chat GTP do it. What are your thoughts on that? So there's definitely a ton of whatever you want to call it, integrations that will tie it into your email and it will auto-generate a response to emails that come in. So from that, merge the potential disclosure of confidential information with having the AI automatically respond to emails. You get an extra issue from that standpoint. For the most part, I like, I push automation from the standpoint of client communication on the low-level things. And Mm -hmm. I always tell people like, look, go to Domino's, order a pizza, follow the Domino's pizza tracker. And then how do you recreate that for your law firm? You know, they've got the, we've got your order. We're putting the pizza together. It's in the oven. We're confirming that's how for delivery. So from a personal injury standpoint, we're in the treatment phase. We're pre-suit negotiation. The lawsuit's been filed. We've got mediation coming on. We've got trial, whatever that is, break that stuff up. And then the more that you automate those emails, like this is the stage of the process. This was the last stage. This is the next stage. You can send that out to a million clients have it say the exact same email or just change their name at the beginning because all of those stages will always be the same. And Mm -hmm. then that way, when you have the phone calls, you can have the phone calls about the specific thing. Okay, Mrs. Jones, the other side offered blah, blah, blah on your case. I think we should counter with this. Do you have any new medical bills that have come in? Whatever that looks like. But at least then, you know, Mrs. Jones and 3,500 other clients got the email. All right, we're in the pre-suit negotiation stage this is what to expect. Or here's here's three YouTube videos we had if you want to read more about this or hear more about what's going on. There's ways to sort of merge these things that allow you the automated communication on the major things and maximize your time on the customization of each individual client's experience or each individual client's case. And you can have a nice balance there. Excellent. Excellent. Those are some great ideas and great thoughts to implement into our practice. And I think that things are going to get more expansive for us, but hopefully a little bit simpler at the same time too. That being said, Jordan, thank you for being on the podcast. Where can people find you? Oh, great question. So there are two Jordan Ostroffs in the world. There's me and so the other one, apparently a really good salesman in the Boston area. He gets a ton of job offers emailed to me. So if you're his boss, he's doing something right. And then there's me, the, the bearded lawyer slash lawyer marketer. So I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook would be the two most common ones. Facebook, you'll see more about me as a parent and a father and whatnot. LinkedIn, you'll see more about me as a business owner and thought leader. So pick your poison or both. Excellent. excellent. So wait, I, I got to ask, do you have a middle name? Michael. Michael. So do you use Michael as part of your, your social media presence? I do not. No, but he, he doesn't have the same following that I can see from that standpoint. He's just okay. really doing a hell of a job at his sales MVP job. So some of my friends and colleagues say, well, why do you always say Michael DJ when you're doing the blog? Or even in the practice, I'm like, it's because, well, that's my middle name. And Michael Eisenberg is such a common name because Eisenberg is such a common name from Eastern Europe. And there's another Michael Eisenberg who actually practices in Washington, D.C. So I got to make sure. So I'm Michael D.J. Eisenberg. And and how many people have initials for their middle name? That is my middle name. My middle name is not David something. Oh. It's it's just D.J., which was my great-grandfather's nickname. So that kind of helps me stand out a little bit. So... But I know Jordan Ostroff as my guest here today, not as some business person trying to get an application for a job. But seriously, I do appreciate you being here. I will make sure that all this is in the show notes. Thank you and have a good day. You as well.
Thank you for joining me on this episode of the TechSavvyLawyer.page podcast. Our next episode will be posted in about two weeks. If you have any ideas about a future episode, please contact me at MichaelDJ at the TechSavvyLawyer.page. Have a great day and happy lawyering. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.